We read in the book, The Desire of Ages, a description of the state of the world immediately before the first advent of Christ. With little modification, this description fits today. The fullness of time has again come. Now, as then, men and women have been emboldened in sin. Satanic agencies are incorporated with men. The bodies of human beings made for the dwelling place of God have become the habitation of demons. The senses, the nerves, the passions, the organs of men are worked by supernatural agencies in the indulgence of the vilest lust. The very stamp of demons is impressed upon the countenances of men. Human faces reflect the expression of the legions of evil with which they are possessed. Now as then, everything in the world is in agitation. The signs of the times are ominous. Coming events cast their shadows before. The Spirit of God is withdrawing from the earth, and calamity follows calamity by sea and by land. There are tempests, earthquakes, fires, floods, murders of every grade. There is assurance in nothing that is human or earthly. Rapidly are men ranging themselves under the banner they have chosen. Desire of Ages 636 the nations are already united under a shadow one-world government. They have one mind. They are giving their power and strength unto the beast, acting in lockstep as the events of these last few years have clearly shown. Freedom is rapidly evaporating. What used to be illegal is now promoted and encouraged. Morality is systematically destroyed. Corruption is entrenched in high places. Truths Facts are suppressed, while official lies and deceptions are broadcast to the people. The mark of the beast will soon be urged upon us. At that time, the waning power of Israel testified that the Messiah's coming was at hand, while today the waning power of Christianity in the world testifies that Christ's coming is at hand. Now, as then, few understand the nature of Christ's coming. The words of the prophets announcing the Lord's coming are not properly comprehended. There is a widespread expectation among Christians that Jesus will soon come to end the growing insanity, but neither the character nor purpose of his coming is understood. People, even we, are unprepared for his coming. At the time of the first advent, the Jews presumed that as long as they clung to the religious observances, God would protect them and save them in the end. They deceived themselves thinking that they were serving God while serving self. Christ declared in Matthew 15.3, You also transgress the commandments of God by your tradition. Their iniquity had blinded them to the true standing with God. They expected commendation, but were incurring God's condemnation. They expected blessings, but were accumulating God's curses. They were expecting salvation, but were earning damnation. Their foundation was built on sand, and unless they woke up before it was too late, storm and tempest would sweep them all away. Satan had perverted the faith and a true knowledge of God. Religion had become a little more than a cloak to cover the selfishness and self-righteousness of their souls. Sin had become a science and iniquity was consecrated. Men were taught that all man has to do is to accept some beliefs and observe some practices, while the need for holiness, purity, humility, righteousness and meekness were all set aside. This teaching lies at the foundation of all false religion and is no different today. Now as then, many have lost sight of the truths that are the foundation of God's church. The Bible is interpreted in a manner that is pleasing to the unrenewed heart while making its solemn and vital truths of no effect. In performing their roles, priests and ministers have become as actors in a play. The presumptuous religion is just a charade. It is powerless to save. They teach that virtue is better than vice, which they depend on their own efforts to achieve, which without the power of God is worthless. A system of intellectual philosophy has been introduced to mask the emptiness of their religion. The fear of God is set aside. The character of God is misinterpreted as being indulgent and permissive. The very words of Jesus are made the means of thus blinding the mind and hardening the heart. They become representatives of Satan, they're doing the work that he desires them to do. God can do nothing for man through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. 
while feeling secure in God's favour, the Jews were standing on the very precipice of their own doom. And there are many today who feel secure in the love and favour of God while they also stand at the very same precipice. As we look back to the condition of God's people and the world at the time of the first advent, we see startling parallels with today. Do we also misinterpret God's promises and flatter ourselves that our religious beliefs and practices have entitled us to God's blessings? Are we also blinded about our true standing with God? Do we expect commendation while incurring condemnation? Do we expect blessings while accruing curses? Do we expect salvation while headed for damnation? Is our religious foundation also built on sand, ready to be swept away in the coming storm and tempest? Manuscript Releases, Volume 13, 379 says, In his word the Lord declared what he would do for Israel if they would obey his voice, but... God could not give them the blessings he designed them to have because they did not obey his voice but listened to the voice and policy of Lucifer. This experience will be repeated in the last years of the history of the people of God who have been established by his grace and power. Men whom he has greatly honoured will in the closing scenes of this earth's history pattern after ancient Israel. End of quote. God could not give up those that have been the beneficiaries of his rich blessings and great light without a struggle. He would give them one last opportunity. He would impart to them a new element of life and power. A startling and stern voice yet full of hope was heard in the wilderness. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Every tree therefore which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Luke 3 8 to 9. It was the purpose of John to startle and arouse the people and cause them to tremble. But feeling assured of God's favour as his chosen people, the Jews saw no need to repent and were destroyed. Many were like Nicodemus. He heard the preaching of John the Baptist concerning repentance. He had felt that there was a lack of spirituality amongst God's people, that to a great degree they were controlled by a love of self and worldly ambition. Yet it failed to work in him any conviction of sin. The idea of a kingdom too pure for him in his present state disturbed him. Yes, the harlots and the publicans needed to hear the Baptist's heart-searching message, but not him. He trusted in God. He was a church leader, knowledgeable of the scriptures, faithful in all things that the church required, and widely esteemed for his benevolence. And he felt secure of the love and favour of God. Yet he was completely unfit to see the kingdom of God and self-deceived. Tragically, few heeded the message of the Baptist and the vast majority were swept away in the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a type, an example of the final outpouring of the wrath of God upon those that see no need to repent. Then, as now, as Christ is preparing to sweep away the kingdoms of this world, the same self-deception has taken hold of God's people and the same startling message is applicable to them. Signs of the Times, February 20, 1901. The same deceptions practiced prior to the destruction of Jerusalem will be practiced again. The events that took place at the overthrow of Jerusalem will be repeated. And Letters and Manuscripts, Volume 7, Letter 19, 1892 says, The guilt of self-deception is upon our churches. The religious life of many is a lie. And First Testimony 3.21 In this fearful time, just before Christ is to come the second time, God's faithful preachers will have to bear a still more pointed testimony than was borne by John the Baptist. Jesus' last words to his church over and over again in the book of Revelation is to repent. Now, as then, a special work of repentance is needed to prepare people to meet their God. Early writing, 71, I saw that many were neglecting the preparation so needful to stand in the day of the Lord and to live in his sight. Oh, how many I saw in the time of trouble without a shelter. They had neglected the needful preparation. 
those who are willing to believe that their condition is far better than it really is will come up to the time of the falling of the plagues and then see that they needed to be hewed and squared for the building. But there will be no time then to do it and no mediator to plead their cause before the Father. And Great Controversy 6.20 Those who delay preparation for the day of the Lord cannot obtain it in the time of trouble or at any subsequent time. The case of all such is hopeless. Jesus declares to us today as he did to the remnant of Israel Be zealous therefore and repent. And Luke 13.3 I tell you, except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now here we have a problem. Satan will do anything he can to keep us from obtaining the repentance necessary for salvation. True repentance is altogether different from what most consider repentance to be. Satan has been so successful that few people even know what true repentance is, let alone what they need to repent from. Many teach that salvation is by means of presumption, that is, by means of believing that you are saved because you choose to do so. And so to them, repentance is only about turning from unbelief to accepting certain beliefs. This is not repentance. In Numbers 14.44, Did the Israelites repent when after having refused to enter Canaan and God condemned them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years that they then turned around from their unbelief and attacked the Amalekites, presuming in God's deliverance? Is this the repentance that God desires or was it purely selfish after the manner of the world? Others teach that repentance is feeling remorse or regret over individual sins and to turn away from that sin. Did King Saul repent after disobeying God's command in keeping the spoils of the Amalekites? Patriarchs and Prophets 6.31 says Saul acknowledged his guilt, but it was not sorrow for sin but fear of its penalty that actuated the King of Israel as he entreated Samuel, I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. Did Balaam repent when he turned aside after he saw the sword in the hand of the angel ready to slay him? Did Judas feel remorse over betraying Christ and turn away from his sin and try to undo its result? Did Esau feel remorse for selling his birthright and turn away from his sin and try to undo its result? Is feeling remorse and turning away from sin because of its consequences really what true repentance is? Hebrews 12:17 says, For ye know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The repentance of all these was and is after the manner of the world. Its primary motivation is to avoid the sure consequence. It is purely selfish. It is a repentance that needs to be repented of. In contrast, True repentance does not seek to avoid any consequence of sin. Its primary characteristic is self-condemning. It is selfless. Great Controversy 6.20 says those professed Christians who come up to that last fearful conflict unprepared will in their despair confess their sins in words of burning anguish. These confessions are of the same character as was that of Esau or Judas, those who make them. Lament the result of the transgression, but not its guilt. They feel no true contrition, no abhorrence of evil. They acknowledge their sin through fear of punishment. Do you think the five foolish virgins had remorse over not having oil in their lamps when they went out at midnight to correct their mistake and purchase oil so they could come into the marriage feast? We read in Luke thirteen twenty-five to 28 When once the master of the house has risen up and has shut the door, And ye begin to stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Notice here that Jesus does not call these people sinners or transgressors. They are not remorseless sinners. These are those that have looked for Christ and been in his presence and listened to his words. They are respectable Christians. They sincerely believe the truth and have made efforts to overcome sin and expect to meet the bridegroom in peace. Christ's Object Lessons 411 The class represented by the foolish virgins are not hypocrites. They have a regard for the truth. They have advocated the truth. But they have been content with a superficial work. What did Christ call these foolish virgins that repent after the manner of the world? that show remorse for their sins and turn away from their mistakes. He called them workers of iniquity. 
There is an important difference between sin and iniquity. Exodus 34.7 says that God keeps mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. To these three different words, iniquity, transgression and sin all mean the same thing. Is it just repetition for poetic expression? This is not a poem. This is the preamble to the law of God, a legal document. And legal terminology has specific meaning. Why is it that God does not visit the transgression or sin upon the children, only the iniquity? We commonly use the word sin as a general term to include all three, sin, transgression and iniquity. But the Bible is more specific. It uses different words to denote different kinds of moral failings. And these failings fall into different classes based on either the scope or the motivation behind the failing. In regard to scope, we can violate the letter of the law, as David did when he ate the showbread, but not sin. Or we can violate the spirit or intent of the law, but not the letter of the law, like the Pharisees did. Or we can do both, violate the letter and the spirit of the law. And in regard to motivation, our sin or iniquity can be unconscious, and the Bible calls them a secret fault, a secret even to us. Or it can be a conscious violation of the law, but not on purpose, accidentally. Or it can be, or we can violate the law on purpose, as in open rebellion. The Hebrew word for iniquity is a different word from that which is used for the explicit transgression of the law, which is sin. Iniquity violates the spirit of the law, but it does not necessarily violate the letter of the law. Iniquity is defined as a moral depravity. It includes things like pride, selfishness, indolence, impatience. Iniquity is so deeply ingrained into our characters, into who we are, that we are, for the most, completely unaware of it. The foolish virgins are superficial because they have been careful to avoid sin, but have indulged their iniquity. Many teach that only sin, only the explicit breaking of God's law, if not confessed and repented from, will deny them entry into heaven. They falsely teach that it is not so with iniquity, that God overlooks it without the need for repentance, because it cannot be helped. These Bible-believing workers of iniquity may feel remorse over their acts of sin and try to remediate them, but they feel no remorse over their iniquity and continue in it until the bridegroom comes and they are shut out of the marriage feast. They like to quote Romans 4.15, Where no law is, there is no transgression. There is no commandment that explicitly says thou shalt not be proud, thou shalt not be selfish, thou shalt not be indolent. And so they see no need to repent from their iniquity. The Jews had the same problem. They understood the need to confess and offer sacrifices of individual acts of sin, but there was no appointed individual sacrifice for iniquity. There was nothing to be done for it. This is the problem with many who, like Nicodemus or the rich young ruler who came to Jesus desiring salvation, they saw no need to repent because they meticulously kept both the letter of the law to the best of their understanding and ability. Repentance, they thought, was only for those who broke the law. The Jews were so determined not to break any of God's laws that they had devised an intricate system of traditions and rules to keep them from breaking the Mosaic law. Paul said of himself, in Philippians 3, 5-6, is touching the law, a Pharisee, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The Pharisees could find no sin in themselves from which they needed to repent. Even Jesus only on one single occasion accused the Jews of being sinners. Yet, he said that they were full of iniquity. Matthew twenty three twenty eight. You also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The parable of the publican and the Pharisee illustrates the problem. The Pharisee believed in God, made efforts to avoid sin, thanked God that he kept the law, and so did not need to repent like ordinary sinners. Not only was he blind to his true condition before God, he misunderstood and defeated the purpose of the law. He thought it was a to-do list to avoid having to repent. The whole purpose of the law is to bring people to repentance. The Sadducees, on the other hand, weren't so concerned about avoiding sin. They were saved by the merit of being children of Abraham, by their merit of being members of God's church, and by the faith in the temple ritual to obtain forgiveness. They are the equivalent of those today who claim to be saved by faith in Christ's atoning death and in being a loyal church member. 
in their rinse and repeat approach to sin and its absolution, repentance has no place whatsoever. In either case, neither had any need for repentance. After all, they were God's commandment, keeping remnant. They had been richly blessed by God and expected even greater blessings from Him. Not only did they see no need to repent themselves, they had no idea what genuine repentance was. It was only open sinners and Gentiles that needed to repent. And by that, they meant to stop breaking the law. That is not repentance. Their idea of repentance converted them into foolish virgins who, as Jesus declared, were twofold more the children of hell than themselves. Even the Apostle Peter, who had been a disciple of John the Baptist and had himself preached the gospel of repentance and had himself baptised many with the baptism of repentance, did not understand genuine repentance nor felt any need of it himself. That is, until he denied Christ. You see, no one can understand true repentance nor see any need for it unless it is revealed to him by God and they are willing to receive it. As 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The Jews were blind to the breadth of the law, and in keeping the letter of the law they had overlooked the spirit of the law. They did not understand that guilt is incurred due to iniquity, even without breaking the letter of the law. As we read in Romans 2.12, For as many have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And James 4.17 To him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. They overlook the fact that in the day of judgment Christ comes to destroy not just the unbelieving and sinners but all the workers of iniquity, whether they keep the law and have faith in him or not. Matthew 7.22-23 Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Isaiah 26:21. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And Isaiah 13:11. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease. Who are the wicked that he will destroy? all those who have the truth and proclaim the law while committing iniquity. As you read in Psalms 50:16, But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou should take my covenant in thy mouth? And Romans 1:18, For the law of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. It's not just the man of sin who sits in the temple of God, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, but all the wicked, all the workers of iniquity, who sit in the temple of God, that will be consumed with the spirit of his mouth and shall be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Like the unrepenting Jews that perished while meticulously keeping the law and the Sabbath in the destruction of Jerusalem, those Sabbath keepers today who will not repent from their iniquity will be destroyed with the brightness of his coming. Why do you think that Christ has still not come? The gospel has already gone to every nation in the world. God is not waiting for us to have converts in every village, schools in every town, hospitals in every city. Our kingdom is not of this world. God is not waiting for us to work harder at overcoming sin like the Jews believed. God is not waiting for evil to get so bad that he has no choice but to put an end to it. God is not waiting for some celestial clock to strike a predetermined time. But as we read in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He is long-suffering to whom? To the atheists? To the heathen? To the Sabbath-breakers? No! He is long-suffering to us, would, to those of us who claim to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Is it possible that like the Jews, we are also blind to our own iniquity? 
and Christ cannot come lest we also be destroyed as they were. Psalms 19.12 Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me thou from secret faults. Are our iniquities the reason why Jesus says to those who claim to have faith in Jesus, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous therefore and repent, lest I spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Revelation 3.19 Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 105 says, I saw that the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heeded. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly esteemed, if not entirely disregarded. This testimony must work deep repentance, and all who truly receive it will obey it and be purified. How will they obey it? Manifesting deep repentance. It is one thing to know what we need to repent from, but quite another to know what true repentance is. The sacrificial system had for the Jews become a formality. As far as iniquity was concerned, they thought it was not their problem and had nothing to do other than believe that it was automatically dealt with by the morning and evening sacrifices. As far as sin was concerned, as far as their sins was concerned, they confessed their sins, they offered their lambs and thought nothing more of it. They thought the repentance for sin was something you do once and forget. But that is not what Jesus meant when he called them to repent. In Mark 1:14 to 15, Jesus came into Galilee saying, The kingdom of God is at hand, repent ye and believe. The words here, repent and believe, in the Greek, have an active, continual aspect. What Jesus meant was that the entry into the kingdom of God required spending the whole of your life repenting and believing, a continuous, ongoing experience. Repentance is not the work of a moment, but a lifetime. You are to repent as often as you believe. This made no sense to the Jews. How could they be continually repenting if they were not continually breaking the law? Does not the scripture teach us that when we repent? In Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And Micah 7, 19, they will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. They reasoned, as many theologians do today, is it not distrust of God if after having confessed and forsaken our sins to again drag them out of the depth of the sea? But the Bible does not teach repent and forget. But it teaches that the memory of our past sins is a witness to the iniquity that dwells within our heart. David's repentance was not a means to put his sin out of his mind. As he says in Psalms 51, 3 and 5, I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Our past sins serve to remind us what Jeremiah wrote about our carnal nature. Jeremiah 79, the cart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Jews fail to understand that Jesus did not just call for repentance from acts of sin, but for all of our iniquity. That is, he called for continual repentance from all of our morally depraved thoughts, feelings and actions. Since our moral depravity stems from our carnal natures, true repentance is not limited to our past unbelief or individual acts of sin, but repentance from the continual inherent evil within ourselves. David's repentance was not just over his transgression, his act of sin, but over his corrupt nature, over his iniquity. He says in Psalms 51, 5 and 2, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in Psalm 51, 9 and 10, Blot out mine iniquities, creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The experience of Job teaches us that even those that have not explicitly committed sin need to repent. We don't know anything about Job's life before the events told in the book of Job, but at least... At that time in his life, God declared Job to be a perfect and upright man, so much that there was none like him in all the earth. 
Almost the entire 42 chapters of the book of Job is dedicated to his three friends advising him that he must have sinned and Job protesting that he had not. Yet when Job saw God, he abhorred himself and repented in dust and ashes, Job 42, 5-6. It was not because he had committed an act of sin that he repented, but because when he saw God, he saw his own imperfect nature in the light of the purity and holiness of God. How could he do anything other than repent from himself? True repentance is a recognition of and hatred of our own inward corruption, a deep yearning for holiness in inner man. It is distrusting yourself and a constant urgent desire to be free from our own sinful natures. This is why repentance is not something that happens once, not even from time to time, but is ongoing, lifelong. It remains as long as the carnal nature remains. Just as we are to continually exercise faith, so we are to continually exercise repentance. Not just over the sins we do, but over our iniquities, over the outworking of our corrupt nature. The first of the 95 theses of the great reformer Martin Luther reads, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. John Calvin, in his Institutes, Numbers 614 and 615, wrote, Therefore, I think he has profited greatly who has learned to be very much displeased with himself, not so as to stick fast in this mire and progress no farther, but rather to hasten to God and yearn after him in order that, having been engrafted into the life and death of Christ, he may give attention to continual repentance. Truly, they who are held by a real loathing of sin cannot do otherwise. End quote. And Review and Herald, 5th of October 1886 says, The true follower of Christ will be gathering a clearer sense of the holiness of God's character and the far-reaching nature of his requirements. He will see more clearly his own defects and will feel the need of continual repentance and faith in the blood of Christ. Christ Subject Lessons, page 160, says that every advanced step in Christian experience, our repentance will deepen. It is to those whom the Lord has forgiven, to those whom he acknowledges as his people, that he says, Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight. It is not the drunk who is to loathe himself, Not the adulterer who is to loathe himself. Not the murderer who is to loathe himself. But those whom Christ has forgiven. Signs of the Times, 26th of November 1894. He who is truly penitent does not forget his past sins and grow careless about them as soon as he has obtained forgiveness. On the contrary, the clearer the evidence he has of divine favour the more he sees to regret in his past life of sin. He loathes, abhors and condemns himself and is more and more astonished that he should have continued in rebellion so long. He renews his repentance towards God while he grasps more decidedly the hand of Jesus Christ and finds that repentance is a daily, continued exercise lasting until mortality is swallowed up in life. And in General Conference Daily Bulletin, February 2, 1893, it says it was the same experience in Job's case. In Job 42, 1-6 we read, I have heard of thee by hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now I say, that will be the experience of everyone. And it is not an experience simply once in a lifetime. It is not simply the experience that comes at conversion. But every time that one catches a glimpse of the glory and purity of Jesus Christ, he can but abhor himself. I am really troubled to know how to find words to express these things. It is necessary to present before our minds the need of self-abhorrence for those who stand in the presence of God. Did you notice the words used to describe what it means to experience godly repentance? Self-condemnation, self-loathing, self-abhorrence, 
godly repentance is a continual and this is exactly the opposite of the humanism and Christian psychology that is so commonly presented in virtually every single so-called Christian church today. Godly repentance is a continual profound recognition for the need and the desire to be saved from self, not in self. It is the opposite of self-satisfaction. David says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. This is true of Peter's repentance also. His denial of Christ opened his eyes to his own wickedness. This caused him to loathe, to abhor himself for dishonouring his master. Peter repented not just from his sin, but from himself. This repentance is not natural to the human heart. It is a supernatural gift from God, one we must obtain if we are to be saved. If the repentance is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it is therefore the beginning of our Christian confidence. Only those who steadfastly hold on to their repentance until the end will have any part with Christ. As we read in Hebrews 3.14, For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. If the role of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to repentance, we cannot continue to be filled with the Spirit without continuing to be filled with repentance. It is the only means by which we can have victory over the lust of our flesh, as we read in Galatians 5.16. This I say, then walk ye in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Combined with genuine faith, in earnestly pleading with God until the inner man is transformed into holiness. True repentance results in victory over all our iniquity and sin. Repentance and faith need to go hand in hand, propelling us forward with every step until we partake of the divine nature, as we are told in 2 Peter 1.4, and are filled with all the fullness of God, Ephesians 3.19. Manuscript Release, Volume 9, page 300. Every believing soul is to conform his will entirely to God's will and keep in a state of repentance and contrition, exercising faith in the atoning merits of the Redeemer and advancing from strength to strength, from glory to glory. In contrast, the fake repentance of the wicked is coupled with presumption, that fearing the consequences of a sin, having confessed it, made some show of reforming, They believe God accepts them even though they remain slaves to sin, being full of iniquity. They are foolish virgins who will be locked out of the marriage feast. The Bible says that the Christian life is but a continuation of the means by which we receive Christ. Colossians 2.6 As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How do we receive Christ? We do so through the gifts of his grace. The gifts of repentance and faith. Both of these need to be continually exercised in order to walk the Christian life. How can we know that we are walking in the Spirit? Because we are experiencing repentance. Those who think they only need to repent occasionally, whenever they commit an act of sin, cannot progress in the Christian walk. They are spiritual cripples, hopping along on the leg of faith alone. Jesus says to us, I have somewhat against thee, because we have forgotten that it was through repentance that we received him. And he exhorts us to return to that repentance. Revelation 3, three. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. Satan instead wants us to remain lukewarm, to be self-satisfied with our spiritual condition, thinking that as long as we believe, Continual repentance is not necessary. He wants us to be content to sit still until we have backslidden into sin and then repent after a fashion to get back to where we were and go no further. He does not want us to be walking in spirit, to be following Christ with us ever he goeth. He does not want us to reach the fullness of Christ. And here we come to the crux of the problem. The Jews were satisfied with their spiritual condition. They believed their desires and efforts to overcome sin was all that God required. And they overlooked the problem of the iniquity that filled their hearts. They did not understand that no one can be saved from sin unless he is first saved from his iniquity. 
They did not know what to do about iniquity. They did not understand that iniquity can only be overcome through active faith coupled with continual repentance. Continual repentance is the only motivating power by which we can be continually dying to self from where sin arises. It is the only means by which the old man is put out of the way and we cannot walk in the Spirit unless the old man is constantly being removed out of the way. Romans 6, 7, For he that is dead is free from sin. Accordingly, the Jews could not understand Christ's mission. He's called to repentance. He's called to take up his cross. They thought he was calling the publicans, the harlots, the blasphemous repentance. And we read that when they did finally understand Christ's mission, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. John six sixty six. They did not want to repent from and give up self. They wanted to be saved in self, not from self. They excused their iniquity on the basis that it was not sin. Sure, they agreed that pride and selfishness was not good, but that was Adam's fault, not theirs. The Jews felt that Jesus was unreasonable in requiring them to repent for something that was not their fault. Who was he anyway to rob them of their assurance of salvation? And this has been the reasoning of the wicked among God's people from the very beginning of time and will be so until the Lord comes in the clouds of heaven. The modern popular gospel rejects the need for continual repentance, teaching that you can be saved in iniquity. Satan is happy for us, like the Jews, to believe, trust, hope, do good works and even keep the law, but he will do everything possible to stop us from having true repentance. Accordingly, belief in God and desire for salvation has never been what distinguishes the sons of God from the children of the wicked one. He and his angels all believe and desire to enter heaven, but they will not repent. In the beginning, from the very moment that Adam sinned, the gospel is that salvation could be obtained by continual repentance and faith. And the same was required of Adam as has been required for everyone after him. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 149, the angels of God were commissioned to visit the fallen pair and inform them that probation would be granted him in which, through a life of repentance and faith in the atonement of the Son of God, he might be redeemed from his transgression of the Father's law. And so we read in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, page 50, that Adam's life was one of sorrow, humility and continual repentance. Like Adam, Peter's repentance was not momentary, but continual and lifelong, as we read in Testimonies, Volume 4, 342. What sense did Peter have of his sin in denying his Lord? What conversion he experienced? His life ever after was a life of repentance and humiliation. The sacrifices for sin were the means for leading men to this continual repentance not just for the individual acts of sin, but for the sinfulness of their own flesh, their carnal natures. As we read in Spiritual Gifts, Volume 3, 295, the system of sacrifices was to teach man humility in view of his fallen condition and lead him to repentance. We see this more clearly in the example of Cain. We have no record of Cain committing any sin until he refused to offer the required sacrifice. He was happy to offer a thank offering to God but refused to offer a sin offering because he did not think he needed to repent from anything. He did not think it fair that God required him to repent over his own iniquity because it was not his fault that he had inherited a sinful nature from Adam. Review and Herald, March 3, 1874, Satan with intense interest watched every event in regard to the sacrificial offerings. He saw that these offerings signified repentance for sin. That's inclusive of iniquity and transgression. This did not agree with his purposes, and he at once commenced to work upon the heart of Cain to lead him to rebellion against the sacrificial offering. Cain's heart refused to show his repentance for sin. This to his proud heart was dependence and humiliation. Cain murmured against God because of the curse pronounced upon Adam and because the ground was cursed for his sin. And in Patriarchs and Prophets 71, 
Cain questioned the divine justice and authority. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 348. Cain did not repent. Instead of censuring and abhorring himself to his unbelief, he still complains of the injustice and partiality of God. And in page 50, Cain and Abel represent the two classes, the righteous and the wicked, which would exist from the fall of man to the second coming of Christ. And Cain's attitude is clearly reflected in that of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim acknowledged its iniquity, but felt no need to repent because he did not consider it to be sin. He was blind to his own condition. He was hidden from his eyes. As we read in Hosea 13.12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is hid. Which is why we read in Hosea 12, 8, and Ephraim said, Yet I become rich, I have found me out substance. In all my labours will find none iniquity in me that were sin. And so because of this, we read in Jeremiah 17, 7, 15, God says, And I will cast you out of my sight, as I will have cast out all of your brethren, even the whole seed of Ephraim. In Hosea 5, 9, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel have I made known that we shall surely be. The unrepenting Jews perished in the destruction of Jerusalem while praying to God expecting him to deliver them. Not because they did not believe the scriptures, not because they failed to keep the Sabbath day and pay tithes, not because they wanted to be saved in their sins, but because they were confident that God would save them in spite of their iniquities. The day came that the words of John the Baptist to them were fulfilled when he said in Luke 3 8, Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. God indeed raised up children unto Abraham to take the place of the wicked Jews who could not see any need for repentance. Christ's warning, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, was fulfilled to the letter. Millions of Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, Bible-believing Jews perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Their faith and works were insufficient to erase the guilt of their iniquities. They had not known the day of their visitation, and the door of repentance was shut to them. The day of atonement had ended for Israel, and they had refused to afflict their souls over their iniquity, and it was left unforgiven, and they were cut off from among God's people. Instead of a day of repentance, the day of atonement had become for them a day of celebrating that their sins had presumably been forgiven. As we read in Isaiah 22, 12-13, And in that day did the Lord God of hosts call to weeping, and to mourning, and to boldness, and to girding with sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness, slaying of oxen, killing of sheep, eating flesh, and drinking wine. Remember that we read at the beginning that the same deceptions practiced prior to the destruction of Jerusalem will be practiced again. Are we, who are living in the antitypical day of atonement like them, celebrating that we have obtained unmerited favour and our sins are forgiven while wallowing in our iniquities as they did? Gospel Herald, 1st of January, 1910, says in a typical service, while the high priest was making atonement for Israel, all were required to afflict their souls by repentance of sin and humiliation before the Lord, lest they be cut off from among the people. In like manner, all who would have their names retained in the book of life should now, in the few remaining days of their probation, afflict their souls before God by sorrow for sin and true repentance. We claim to have the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God and expect God's deliverance and think we are rich in God's grace and increased in spiritual goods and in no need of repentance. Will our iniquities force God to spew us out of his mouth? Will we be destroyed as were the Jews? In God's mercy, it is still the day of atonement. The door of repentance is still open. It is still our day of opportunity. Testimonies, volume 5, page 77. Oh, that thou hadst known, even thou, 
in this thy day, the things that belong unto thy peace. Oh, that our people may, as did Nineveh, repent with all their might and believe with all their heart, that God may turn away his fierce anger from them. And in pamphlet 120, 1919, it says the tempest is coming and we must get ready for its fury by having repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will arise to shake terribly the earth. The end is near and probation is closing. Christ is coming to save his people, but he will pass by those that feel satisfied with their belief in God, with their keeping of the law, with their good works, with their church attendance, with their missionary efforts. He will pass by those that are comfortable in their iniquities, in their pride, in their selfishness, in their impatience, in their indolence. He is only coming for those that abhor the corruption of their own souls, that are distrustful of self, that mourn over their spiritual condition, that continuously plead with strong faith and tears to be saved from themselves. How much longer will the door of repentance remain open? The day is coming when those of us who have felt no need for repentance will find no place for it though we seek for it carefully with tears, as did Esau. Testimonies, Volume 997, the time of God's destructive judgments is the time of mercy for those who have had no opportunity to learn what is truth, while the door is closed to those who would not enter. Sadly, we have been told that the experience of the Jews will be repeated in the last years of the history of the people of God. And we read in Testimonies, Volume 1, 608, In the last vision given me, I was shown the startling fact that but a small portion of those who now profess the truth will be sanctified by it and be saved. And early writings 21, They heard the fearful words, It is done. It is finished. The plan of salvation had been accomplished, but few had chosen to accept it. And as mercy's sweet voice died away, fear and horror seized the wicked. With terrible distinctness, they hear the words, Too late! Too late! Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Hebrews 4, 7. Oh, that we might repent while it is still time with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and with all our strength that we might be prepared to meet our God in peace. Jesus is pleading with us today as he did in Luke 13, 3. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. <laughs>